Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. The podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. We are here to learn with you guys. That's the best part about this show. Um, we started out knowing not near as much as we do now, and it's because five to six years of having the habitat bug, interviewing guys like you, gals like you, some experts, some some teachers and professors, people along the way who've been kind enough to share their journey with us in the habitat world. Tonight's episode or today's episode is no different. Episode number 254 here with my good friend, Mr. Skip Sly. Guys, Skip is a Michigan native. He now lives in Iowa. We actually come from the same county, same part of the world, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, a lot of weird uh, coincidences with Michigan. A lot, a lot of deer nuts out of Michigan. I don't know what that is uh, all about. But anyway, Skip is very knowledgeable, been doing habitat for 25, 30 years, has owned a ton of different farms, and we really dive into timber stand improvement, and what to do in the woods on your farm. We go deep into the weeds. We don't just cover this high level. We go all the way in. Uh, matter of fact, we had about five or six other subjects to cover with Skip, and we never got past timber stand improvement. TSI, getting the deer habitat the way it needs to be compared to most, almost every piece of property that I've been on, Skip's been on, Brian's been on, that need the, the help in the timber. So guys, Skip Sly from Iowa Whitetail from Iowa kills very nice old mature deer out in Iowa. And just a great conversation. This conversation is full 
of uh, tips and tricks and, and and knowledgeable points that that we cover, and just really really enjoyed it. So uh, fear not, Skip will be back on. Uh, that's the plan in the future to talk about many other things we can dive down. But what's cool about Skip is he went out and chased his dream. He went out and got it done. He figured out a way. He worked hard, and to where he's at now, to, to where he, where he started. You know, you can tell the guy just had a goal in mind and, and he went and got it. And those are the type of people I like to talk to um, and, and try to learn from, um, you know, as we all chase chase our goals and, and make our property the best they can be in the Habitat world. So Habitat Podcast 254, Mr. Skip Sly out of Iowa. Uh, guys, I wanted to thank everybody who's been leaving us great reviews on iTunes. You know, I've said that many times, uh, but I I truly mean it. Like, there's a guy on here. I'm going to send a free five-inch decal to everybody who leaves us a great review. You can scroll down, hit the link in the show notes of this episode, the, the details of the episode. Hit the five-star button, type out something nice. I'll send you a review. I'm sorry, I'll send you a decal for the review. This one is by Blake Atro N19. Blakeatron, actually, now that I read that again. Blakeatron 19. My brother introduced me to the podcast a couple months ago, and I've been hooked ever since. We grew up in West Michigan and hunt in West Michigan. Wow, another West Michigan native. Habitat management is something new to us as we grew up on a small farm in the days when you could dump buckets of bait and didn't really need to worry about food plots and such. I hear you, Blake. I've been there. The episode about hunting with young kids was really cool to hear. My son, four years old, and I were able to get out and get a deer this October. It was so much fun. A challenge for sure to get the boy to be quiet enough for deer to come in but it was definitely my most memorable hunt to date i would love to hear an episode with a dog tracker for the past three seasons i've been training a tracking dog and it's so much fun would love to hear some tips and thoughts from a real pro love the podcast keep up the great work blake b guys this this is a perfect example not just because it's a five-star review and, and something nicely written suggesting what he wants to hear in the future um i've been talking with my buddy steve about a dog tracker so, Blake, it might be your lucky day coming up here soon. You know, this is the type of stuff that, you know, that feedback that we like to hear. We like to know, uh, you know, what you guys think. And that's kind of where, why we're getting into this Patreon thing in the future as well. Get a closer relationship with our community um, and, and be able to have more interaction or interchange. Here's another one from uh, Goyer 91 Great info. I've heard a lot of helpful information to help me. Plus, the guests on the show are awesome. And the great deals on the great products. I think he means from our partners. So, Mr. Goyer, thank you so much. Truly appreciate that. Here's one more from Mark Demoy. Secrets of Killing Big Bucks. Heck of a podcast. Look forward to listening every week. You can learn a lot from the guys hunting public land and learn a lot to manage your own land. Mark, I would agree. Guys, thank you so much for those awesome reviews. If uh, if I haven't gotten a hold of you yet, email me info at Habitat Podcast. And I will get you a free five-inch decal. Guys, we are at 487 reviews. Would love to make that 500. And the reason we always talk about these great reviews is because this helps us stay on top of the Habitat Podcast game. This is what helps new people find us. We get new people that find us all the time. Habitat is a brand new um, idea to a lot of folks. You know, a lot of us have been doing it for a while who listen to this podcast. But there's also a ton of people who are just dipping their feet in. So... Really appreciate the great reviews. I can't say enough. Thank you so much to everybody who listens to the Habitat podcast. We really appreciate you. Guys, I also want to talk about, you know, I'm going to bring my son out tomorrow evening. Hunting season is not over. It's going to be mid-December. Yeah, maybe maybe the guns are over for the bucks, but we still have late antlerless coming 
and uh, still hunt with a bow. So don't give up yet. The season is not over. Um, you know, I've been getting a couple daylight pictures of some decent deer. One's got a, a ratchet strap stuck to his eight point rack. Pretty wild looking deer. Um, the strap's been on him like all season. It's pretty crazy. You know, there, there's still deer out there and the weather's been decent, hoping for a little bit colder, but, you know, hang in there, keep going, and you'll hear more from us soon at the Habitat Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Guys, I'd like to add, this is going to be part one of TSI with Skip Sly. Part two coming next week. Have you guys used a Packer Max Cult Packer yet? I know that being the first partner of the Habitat Podcast, I've been using one for over five years now. Guys, cultipacking is one of the highest um, rated and highly overlooked part of your food plot system. It helps maintain soil moisture, keeps it in the soil, improves seed to soil contact when you press those seeds into the dirt and ensures superior seed germination for all seed types. I do not plant a food plot without cultipacking. Guys, Packer Max and Lincoln over there, great company great people they have five different cultipackers available at packermax.com and they also have a roller crimper combo attachment for the packer max so that's what i use i can crimp i can pack i can do everything with my packer max crimper combo they even came out with a six foot unit at packermax.com guys be sure to utilize this piece of equipment when you're planting food plots to get the best success in your seed germination check them out packermax.com we have a code hpc25 at checkout to save money all right welcome back everyone brian how you doing tonight my friend i'm doing well buddy just uh making my way through december here and hard to believe november's gone and almost halfway through december now so getting to the next phase of the hunting season and trying to fill some more tags. How about you? Heck yeah, man. Uh, doing good. Doing good. Catching up on some more, getting ready for the holidays. Um, got three Michigan tags in my pocket still. And I uh, got very excited for our conversation tonight. Before we get to that, though, you're going to Texas like tomorrow, right? Or the next day? Yeah, Friday morning. A uh, nice. bunch of us crazy Pennsylvanians are driving down. 24-hour drive and hopefully shoot some big whitetail bucks and some wild boars and have a bunch of different kind of meat to get us through the holidays. Heck yeah, man. You're going, is that South Texas or where is that at? It is. Yeah, it's south of San Antonio. Uh, it's only probably 60 miles from the Mexican border, so we're down there pretty far. All right. And our guest today, Mr. Skip Sly. How you doing tonight, Skip? Have you been to Texas hunting before? I would love to go. Absolutely <laughs> on my list. That was, uh, I would say that was one of six hot spots when I was a kid that I would see like the very limited amount of shows and magazine articles. It was like Texas had big deer, Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, maybe Montana when I was starting. And then I was just talking about this the other day. There was this island when I was a kid that I used to hear about with just tons of deer and you, you could shoot one or two bucks. And I always wanted to go to this island. So that's that's how I, Texas was on that list, though. And when you said Montana, was it like probably the real tree days, like Milk River, Montana? <sighs> I think I think that's probably what it was. And that's I mean, that's where you went if you wanted to shoot big deer. And this is when I'm a kid and I'm obsessed and there's very little information. And I remember, you know, being like 15 or something looking into it and I'm checking it. I think I made like six, seven dollars an hour, maybe at this point. And I called some people like, yeah, it's like five thousand dollars to come here. I'm like, well, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> 
That'll just be a dream. So still haven't done that either. But Texas, Saskatchewan, Alberta, all that stuff. It sounds just awesome. And eventually, you know, someday I'd love, I'd definitely love to experience it. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, you know, with all the Chad Nugent videos and and Jackie Bushman videos, everything with Texas for years, I was supposed to go with Brian. I had, I had to bail. My dad was going to come along. He bailed. And uh, now I'm kind of regretting it sitting here with no no great plans in sight. And Brian, you're taking off in two days to go almost to Mexico deer hunting. So that's pretty awesome, man. I wish you wish you luck. Appreciate it. So, Skip, let's hear about, uh, you know, you're not doing, you may not be in Texas, but you're not doing too bad yourself where you're at. Let's get a little background on who you are, where you're from, um, and, and just, just dive into the whole thing. Brian and I are both familiar with some of your ventures and uh, listen to Jake's podcast, etc. So go ahead and tell us your backstory. So I'm from Zeeland, Michigan, uh, Holland, Michigan, Grand Rapids area. So Southwest Michigan. Um, I lived in Traverse City for a while. Um, uh, we, we still have a little, little family property in the UP by Cedarville. Um, I've never, I mean, it's like not for deer hunting anymore because it's like there's no deer really. Um, so I've hunted all around Michigan, I'd say maybe 20 counties in Michigan. And I started out in Ottawa County and it was basically, hmm, I would say some of the worst in Michigan, maybe not quite as bad as Cedarville. Uh, but you know, if you saw five to six year and a half old bucks in a whole season, that was pretty typical. You did not see two and a half year old bucks. I oftentimes went a week without seeing a deer, maybe see a few here. If I got a glimpse of a buck, it was a big deal. And then if I got a buck in range and shot it, that was just huge. It was gigantic. So, um, so I was a city boy and I got into hunting just kind of on my own. It was uh, kind of a weird deal, just, um, picking up archery at church camp and then, um, going out squirrel hunting. And then my buddies were like, go try and chase deer with a bow and arrow. So, I just got dropped off by my mom and started walking around. Uh, worst deer hunter on the planet. Um, and then the snowball just got obsessive very, very quickly. And then I wound up in Southern Michigan and we shot some, I mean, giants in Southern Michigan, like deer I didn't even know existed. And then the whole floodgates to other states start opening because every every time we'd shoot a big deer in Michigan, we'd usually lose the spot and it'd get leased out or whatever. So I also got to hunt public land pretty much all over the state of Michigan. Um, so I would say at a very, very young age, I always wanted to own land and that was my goal. So literally maybe 12 years old, I started saving for land. That was my, I had a lawn business and then I could work for farm operations, um, and with the with the labor laws in Michigan, and I made four twenty five an hour doing that, and then did my lawn businesses, and I just saved from like twelve years old until twenty one when I graduated college. I had enough for a down payment on land, and I bought my first farm, and that happens to be in Iowa. And then I hunted probably a dozen different states across the Midwest. And then the last little quick summary I'll give: um, I pretty much had to learn how to fix a farm up from head to toe, you name it, anything involved with fixing up a farm. Uh, and I've done it probably a couple hundred times over uh, on different farms um, for myself and for my family. And um, now I own kind of my dream farm and. I'm unemployed and I just, I farm and do this stuff every day and I love it. And literally I'm just walking in in the door about an hour ago from doing farm work, not hunting. Heck yeah, man. That's great. Great backstory. I'm also from Ottawa County area, um, Grand Haven and, uh, oh, curious, goodness. 
Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Hey, curious, what was your church camp that you learned archery at? It was um uh Camp Geneva. Okay, yep, familiar. familiar. And it was Camp Geneva that we did something, and then it was another one. Um, it was more north, like maybe by Nuevo or something. It was camp north Henry. there. Was it Camp Henry? It could have been. That's and that one I don't horrible. remember, but I remember we went north. Okay. And I still remember there was a guy there with like, um, he had a compound bow and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then, you know, we just, I had the little fiber, I don't know if it was fiberglass or plastic and we chewed at hay bales. And I still remember looking at this guy with a compound bow. I'd never seen it. I didn't. And he told me, he goes, yeah, I hunt deer with this thing. I'm like, what? That's so cool. And, you know, I mean, literally I was a city boy. Nobody in my family hunted. And I was like, that is awesome. I want to learn how to do that. So I got the the cheap, probably $20 bow. And then I went to the sports store and they're like, hey, we got these Darton compound bows. Oh, I don't know, 200 bucks maybe. And I got that and I'm, I shot them in my backyard. And yeah, I just kind of <laughs> learned how to deer hunt after that. So it sounds, sounds very familiar. Um, part of that West Michigan, you know, very, uh, very Dutch over there and, and, and concerned. Oh, that's me. And oriented. Yep. You ain't Dutch much, right? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Holland, Zealand. That's where I spent my whole life. Um, yeah, it's, it, it was a great place to grow up. Uh, I couldn't go back there for deer hunting if, <laughs> if there's no price. There's no way. I, I love Iowa, but I do love my upbringing too. So uh, great people over there. Great, great, um, great memories, great upbringing. And a lot of people in West Michigan that I still keep in touch with that are just wonderful people. If there was anything you did miss about about Michigan and deer hunting, if you had to pick something, well, you can't you can't put deer hunting in that. The, the the only thing I would miss from West Michigan uh, would be the people, uh, the memories, the experience I had. Um, the deer hunting was so bad, but <laughs> a spot I had permission on, or a buddy of mine had permission. Sorry. And I would go out there with them. They just shot a two, like a 225 or a 240 or something gigantic this year during youth season at a spot that um, I've been on multiple times when I was a little kid. I mean, so whatever, 30 years ago, they shot a 220s out there. And I'm like, what? It was crazy. I'm, I'm sure you saw the picture this year. It's, it, it was unbelievable. It was a youth hunter. Um, right outside of Zealand. Jeez. Yeah, those pictures yeah. float around, especially in Michigan. You know, it's probably been out of Michigan out of doors and, and the whole thing, right? Yeah, you've seen it. And I mean, I'm serious. I hardly remember anybody even shooting a two and a half year old deer like throughout high school. And now I talk to people back home and they're like, and they're, you know, this guy shot a 150 or this guy shot a 160, you know what I mean? And then like 220s or something. I mean, so it definitely has gotten better than when I was I was young. And there's clearly some reasons for that, too. I mean, um, you know, a lot of hunters have quit and some grounds got tied up. Now, the other side of it, too, is a lot of guys started managing, started doing habitat. And the big one I would say that's different from when I was a kid is guys are like, yeah, I'll pass up a year and a half old bucks. Well, 30 years ago, nobody did that. I mean, that alone is just a game changer. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I mean, the. My grandpa had never shot a doe his entire life, right? So to your point about I got to get my buck, period, no matter what that buck is. Yeah, that's that's what um, there's still a lot of that with the older generation. Yeah, I, st I still hear it, too. I mean, I've got some guys down right now that are from Wisconsin in their 70s hunting on my farm. Oh, cool. And 
those those words still get said for you know the people they're surrounded with gotta get my buck gotta fill my buck tag um you know in i mean i I, i've been around that for so long but even as as a young age i I would always kind of like be like you know when i realized i wanted more of a challenge to me it always confused me and it kind of made me scratch my head like why do you i don't get why what the the satisfaction is really with just shooting countless year and a half old bucks and a lot of these older guys were, you know, where maybe I quit doing it is I'd see them shoot these like year and a half old bucks and they, I'd talk to them and they weren't even excited about it. They were just like, you know, got, I got my buck, had to do it. Uh, if I wouldn't shoot them, the neighbors were, and they weren't, mm. they weren't excited. And so I don't ever want to tell anybody what to shoot, but you know, for me, you know, I'm like, okay, I want to, I want to shoot what makes me excited and what makes me happy and what, what's a challenge, what I call a challenge. When I saw that older generation do those things, I noticed it. And that's why I was like, no, you guys, that's cool. Keep doing it. But I want to keep progressing. And I just never stopped. Yeah. It's like the old can't eat the antler argument, which oh gosh, is, is fine, but you can eat a doe too. But yeah, like, like you said, yeah. I never, I never give anybody any crap about it. I just kind of oh, keep my opinions not. to myself. But. Absolutely not. And I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know anybody. I mean, maybe it's who I surround myself with, but I don't hear anybody that would ever give a kid flack for shooting a little buck or something. Nobody, I don't right, ever hear right. it. And if I did, I'd be like, dude, come on. Um, right. So, you know, I think that gets overplayed a little bit. And then the people generally who don't probably have the hunting skills and can't get it done are usually the ones that say stuff like that. You can't eat the horns. Trophies in the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, whatever. It's true. I mean, it's it's kind of an excuse for I just don't have the hunting skills and I, I, I want to feel better about the, you know, the decisions I make. But, you know, whatever. I mean, to each his own. Um doesn't really bother me, but fundamentally, you know, it's it's made me migrate to areas where the mindset is different. And I would say just like the culture in Iowa, it's just different. People are like, you know, no, I want to shoot. I know a lot of guys that are like, I want to shoot things on age. I don't care score. I mean, the dynamics changed a lot. Right, um, right. So, yeah, kind of seen the worst. So the worst hunting scenario out there, I've seen it, I've lived in it. And the very best, I've seen that too. And I've seen everything in between that. Which is, you know, it's a blessing. You know, I, w- I wouldn't have want to st- wanted to start on the top because I wouldn't have probably been interested or I would have been spoiled, you know. So sure. I'm glad I've had the progress and I can kind of understand everything in between. And it helps me be a little bit more empathetic to other hunters or, you know, just understand the dynamics of different states, regions, neighborhoods, mindsets. Um, and I, I definitely can sense the shift in mindset and how the, the whole industry, good and bad, you know, the whole hunting, hunting culture has changed in 30 years so much. It's just wild. Right. Some good, yeah, some bad. So, yeah. So um, what made you uh, come to the final decision to move to Iowa and, and how did that look heading out from Michigan? Well, right when I was in uh, Traverse City, um, you know, I, I was chasing world records, I guess, with the Ron Paolo buck oh, yeah. uh, in my neighborhood, even though every other mature buck I saw in Traverse City was like, they'd max out at like 130. And I'd, I'd look back at the archery shop and I'd look at like 30 years and there'd be mature bucks in there. And they somehow maxed out at 130, but the Ron Paolo guy was able to find 200s up in Traverse City. So I tried to... <laughs> <laughs> that one's another kid of worms that's kind of funny. Uh, and understanding soils. So we'll go into it. We're going to ask. So. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, I'll make that one really short, really short. Soils are terrible. They're terrible. The nutrition is terrible. 
Um, the genetics are not top tier. The the you know um, the region up there, sandy soils, just harsh winters. The deer just. I mean, I've I've looked at hundreds of deer that are like 120 inches to maybe 150 that are mature, and you never really see much past that 150. I mean, maybe there's a few exceptions. And then this guy gets a state record 190s. And then a decade later, whatever, he gets a, a world record. So I'm like, wow, he got the state record and the world record from a region of the state that really doesn't have high scoring deer. Huh. Uh, th- there's just no, that one, there's clearly just no doubt in my mind. What? And, and granted, I lived down the road from the guy and I had a little. I won't get into that part, but he's got a little bit of a reputation. I knew, I talked to some people that know him and they're just like, yeah, just kind of rolled their eyes. But I don't know him personally, but I no, I don't I don't buy that one for a second, but I can't prove it. It's kind of one of those funny conspiracies that will probably never be answered definitively. But no, I mean, in my mind, not even not even a question. I mean, <laughs> it's not it's, it's not even controversial. It's not impossible not not impossible but as close to it as you can get so um but back to your original question uh how did i wind up in iowa i hunted pretty much every state i could in the midwest um and then i came to iowa and got permission on a place before i graduated college and we would just take road trips on a budget um and i hunted here and i shot 170 i don't know i think it was like 175 or 177 the first 30 minutes of hunting in Iowa. Wow. Like, geez, my, uh, I've spent decades chasing deer and I just go to Iowa for 30 minutes and I shoot 170s. Uh, this is now what year I'm, was that? That would be like maybe like 99 or 2000. Okay. Cause I bought my first farm when it was, yeah, it was 2002. And, and then I moved out here quite, pretty shortly after that. And I would say the hunting in Iowa peaked probably when I was there in 99, it was top tier up until about 2008, 2009, right around there. That a big decade, call it a 15, almost a 15 year period. Hmm. And then it's kind of definitely trickled down. And the hunting across Iowa now is definitely not what it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Not even, it's it's definitely hurting for a lot of reasons. Yeah, so what made it so great then and, and what kind of uh, things made it change so drastically? So pretty much, um, if you think about it, back in early 2000s, one, I'll just list a few things we didn't have. We didn't have trail cameras. We did not have short wall, uh, straight wall cartridges that can shoot two and 300 yards. And a lot of these guys have guns that can shoot 300 yards now. Um, We didn't, you know, so it was slug guns. You know, I'm talking 50 yards. And even back in the early 2000s, I would say most guys as archers were shooting 25 yards maybe. And then with slug guns, they're maybe shooting 75 to 100 well, now I would almost double both of those categories. And then they added more seasons, more deer tags. They gave out tags like like candy, where it was rather difficult to get doe tags. And they just raised all the quotas. They wanted the deer just annihilated. Hmm. So the liberalization of the seasons definitely hurt us. But Iowa uniquely held the line on a lot of stuff. Like we didn't allow the crossbows during archery season. Um, and the other, you know, some other, a lot of other states, just the lob, the crossbow lobbyists pushed it, paid off the politicians, paid off really the whole process with the lobbyists and got it pushed through to archery season. Sure. Um, we held the line on stuff like that and we said no to the special interests. So that's kept us really, really good. Um, 
So I would say we're hurting, but we're still sitting really good. The other thing that has really degraded us uh, since our heyday is EHD is a huge component. It's giant. Um, so EHD, we've had a lot of cycles that have been really, really bad. Uh, we've had stuff. People don't realize this one, but we've we've had a coyote population that has grown exponentially to what mm. I would call epidemic level. And most people don't even pay attention to this. But I mean, I'm outside every night. I understand how many coyotes are in an area. And when we killed 250 of them off my farm, over 250 last year. Wow. So. I mean, there's an there's a coyote epidemic across the Midwest. Kansas is probably the worst, and I think they have the documented highest coyote population in the country, or for sure the Midwest. Wow. Well, you know, and guys are hunting with thermals. They are trapping some, very little trapping though, compared to ten or twenty years ago. Very little trapping. They're doing a little bit of um, hunting with dogs, um, but the the decrease in trapping in the last 20, 10 and 20 years has just allowed that population to explode. And some guys would say, well, that's nature keeping things in check. Yeah, it's out of balance. I would say it's out of balance. It's keeping some of the, the regions in Iowa, I would say probably three quarters of the area of Iowa is way underpopulated, like far, far, uh, not nearly enough deer. And, you know, guys will start laying off the doe shooting. Well, I, I'm at these farms often. I mean, you look at the does that come out and they usually don't have fawns. Um, the predators are really hard on them. So um, so it's kind of like a perfect storm. You know, you start killing off all the deer, you start getting disease in there, new strains of BHD, and then you let a coyote population get so insanely out of control and people don't see it because it happens usually in the dead of night. And it's just kind of a perfect storm to really degrade things. So a lot of natural things um, along with, with regulations has really knocked us back. And then the last thing I'll add real quick <laughs> Sorry, I'm my long-winded rant, but, um, no, you know, the, good stuff. the publicity around Iowa. Uh, hey, man, I'm watching this YouTube video. Look at all these giants. Well, that's a very, very, very rare farm people are watching on TV uh, or YouTube, you know, and, and it's brought all these people here or even, even made some of the residents here like, you know, almost like that social media pressure to post a buck picture. And they go out and they're like, well, this three-year-old has kickers and flyers. I better shoot it. I want to post them on Instagram and Facebook. And they shoot deer they shouldn't. And, um, you know, and the, there's just this perception like I was going to have bombers all over. And I see the guys on TV do it. So I got to shoot a bomber and I got to post a deer. And, you know, it's just it just kind of ruins things. and. It's really crippled us. And I would say that that same type of scenario is probably replicated across the Midwest. And, you know, I would say, hey, it's it's great to shoot a buck and to post it and to share. That's fun. But um, it has gotten to a pretty um, kind of a, a threshold of like, guys, uh, we are not hunting to get a buck to post on, on Instagram and Facebook. That's not why you're doing it. That's a that's a little side product of it. And I made a little post the other day on that on Instagram. But um don't make that the reason you hunt, guys. Don't do it. Because I I talk to some younger people, and I can tell there's a pressure to post a buck like their buddies did. And, um, you know, yeah, that's one, real, for sure. Yeah. And and I would just say, you know, aside from, yeah, it hurts the, the deer herd, the age structure, the quality of the hunting. I would say for the people who, that are hunters, you're not going to enjoy hunting if that's why you hunt. You know, um, go out there. Turn, and, and me, I mean, I'm just an example uh, I'll just give you an example of myself, how I do. I mean, I go out and hunt, and most of the time, I just turn my phone off. You know, I want to be in nature. I want to be in peace. Um, 
I want to be in God's great outdoors. And, and I don't, I don't want to be plugged into the, the social media stuff. I mean, I can handle about five minutes of it a day. Uh, <laughs> and that's about it. I mean, but that's why I love hunting. I mean, I just, I love being outdoors. I love working on the land every day. And then I love hunting. And, you know, um, somebody shot a buck at my farm tonight while I was working. And, uh, you know, it was just awesome. I got to FaceTime him because uh, I was I was moving some equipment. But, you know, it, the whole experience, I just love it. I'm just as obsessed as you probably can get. And and it changes over the years. I mean, I'm 45 now, but as a 20 some year old, I mean, I was, you envision the guy, maybe, I mean, yourself, the, the most obsessed lunatic maniac spending every minute in the woods hunting possible, uh, finding every way to get out there every minute hunting in storms and tornadoes and lightning and, um, on not ideal conditions. And I learned a lot from that, like not, wise things to do pick your pick your days but i mean i was just eating eating up with it forever and still to this day you know i still really do have a strong passion it's a different passion it's more like now it's more like yeah i like other people to shoot deer and i get happy and bringing other hunters out and having them enjoy the experience and my kids are getting into it you know so it's a new chapter in my life but i still do genuinely love it and there there is some people in iowa that quote unquote are in the business if you want to call it that that I mean, I, they're my friends and they're, they're like, damn, this is more my job. I don't really enjoy the hunting as much. And I'm like, ooh, I don't want that to happen to me. Um, so I just kind of keep things managed to a point where, you know, social media or videos or whatever, or anything like that. I don't want it. I don't want it to interfere with my love of hunting in the outdoors. Um, and I, I just want to keep it a personal experience at that level that I, I truly do love it. And I have a passion. And, and if I didn't, I'd just sell all my farms and I don't know, pick up another hobby, but yeah, I love it. And now my kids are hooked too. Guys, I want to tell you a little bit about my friends over at Morse Nursery. I've been planting Morse Nursery trees from their nursery here in Michigan since I've been doing habitat work on the 15 acres. Uh, right before I sold the 15, I had my apple trees budding and dropping apples. I had my chestnut trees dropping chestnuts my crabs, the pears. Guys, Morse Nursery has been around for a very long time. Charlie Morse used to run the show and man, their, their tree stock is unbelievable. Um, MorseNursery.com, fall is the time to place your orders for the spring. Whether you want chestnuts, persimmon, apple trees, pears, oak trees, or any tree and shrub protection. You know, they even offer a survival kit for 10 bucks that will warranty your tree. You do everything right and it's still, you know, you get the drought or whatever, you still have a warranty. Morse Nursery offers that. Guys, they have starter bundles. They have a hardiness zone map on the website. Morse Nursery is my go-to spot for wildlife trees. I'll be picking up a load of the oldest trees I can get and bringing them down to a client of mine in Iowa and Illinois here very soon. I think if anybody's interested in cold, hardy trees, tough trees, good genetic trees that have stood the test of time, check out Morse Nursery. Com. We even have a code if you're on Morris Nursery's website, you want to save some money, use code HABITAT10. That's 10% off. We even also offer some dealer pricing. Habitat Pockets, we are a dealer for Morris Nursery. If you're interested in getting a good nursery, or I'm sorry, a good orchard set up on your property, let us know. We'll be happy to help. Guys, check them out. MorrisNursery.com, Habitat10. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations 
and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. That's great. Yeah, good stuff all around there. Appreciate you going in-depth on that. And it's kind of interesting considering your background. I mean, you you moved to Iowa and you started a website. So kind of walk us through how that came about and, and where you're at with that. Well, I learned a lot from Iowa Whitetail. And there was a guy in there named Doubletree. Uh, and he ended up being my neighbor in Iowa. And he moved to Iowa from Michigan. And he was also an obsessed conservation habitat nut. Well, he was posting all this stuff on Iowa Whitetail. And he was posting it on uh, a Michigan sportsman site and, and a QDMA site and stuff like that. And the information he posted was pure. It was real. It was genius. And it definitely was, um, I mean, it, a lot of it was pioneering uh, things that are, are utilized all over today. And people don't, you know, people have copied it and spun it a little bit. But he really pioneered a lot of stuff and just an awesome, awesome guy. Uh, and he died maybe, hmm, maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago, something like that. And then right after he passed away, all his information and all we had done with Iowa Whitetail and all I'd learned. I wanted to make sure that was preserved. So the guy who owned Iowa Whitetail reached out to me. And long story short, I just ended up buying it to kind of uh, not not huge dollar figures at all, but just to keep that information preserved and continue it and to continue basically giving to others what that site and what other people get, gave to me in the past, was, which was a lot of knowledge, a lot of help, sped up the learning curve so much. So it wasn't, it's not about the money at all. I mean, it really, it costs money really uh, to, to have the website and do all this stuff. But uh, it was my way of paying back. Just, I mean, so much helpful information and just the best pure information that really does work. And that in today's day and age, it's just, it's so hard to sift through the good information and the garbage. And there is some of each and the spectrum in, in between. So. I just kind of took this on to, you know, keep as pure and what I view as like the most, you know, successful way to do things and all the experiences I've had and all the hard lessons I've learned and help give that to others to speed up their process. And, you know, when I meet other people who are passionate about habitat and conservation and management and taking things that, you know, are, are degraded and making them amazing, like, like land. Um, I love meeting those people and I enjoy talking about it too. So, um, yeah, it's just my way to, to continue to help those people. And, you know, I, I still like it. Like people are like, Hey, can I call you? And I don't take a ton of calls, but like, sorry for bugging you. I'm like, dude, you're not bugging me. I love this stuff. I, I truly yeah. do. Every, everything habitat. I love it. Yeah. Jared and I got to know Paul through the old, uh, QDMA forums. Bingo. And, uh, he had some links linked back to Iowa Whitetails, which was my first experience with it. Gosh, I can't even remember how long ago that was, Jared. At least 10 years or better. Yeah, I mean, the probably, probably before that. Yeah, we met seven, eight years ago, probably on there. Yeah, he was a genius. 
I mean, I learned so much from that guy. Um, we did projects together. That's we cool. learned a lot together. We made mistakes together. Um, he was older than me, a uh, great mentor. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was not a ton of information like that back back in the day. And still to this day, you know, pure, really, really good information. I would say there's still not a ton of it. There's a lot of information. A ton of good, pure information? No, I wouldn't say so. So, yeah, yeah. just a fantastic guy, fantastic fantastic information source. Yeah, very, very good. Not only very good teacher, but he was a good learner, too. I mean, he would really go in depth to do experimentation and, and really explain, like, hey, I'm not just observing this. I actually tried it, and this is what I got. And it was really fun to learn from him. And you know, we got to know his son, Jesse, real good now. And Jesse's awesome. Yeah, yeah, really good guy. So. Yeah, it was just uh, really, really enjoyed learning from Paul, and and uh, definitely he was cut down too short, and the, the habitat world definitely misses him. Yep, and you know that's one takeaway I took from Paul is the experimentation and the learning. I mean, at the time when everybody looked to him for the best information, he was constantly trying new things, constantly evolving, constantly saying, you know, I found a better way to do it, or I'm going to try this. You know, some old information I had actually changed what I used to do. He was he was always getting better. And and that's kind of the mindset I take. I mean, I'm still constantly experimenting with things, whether it's native grasses, trees, food plots, soils. I mean, farm equipment, how I farm. I mean, I farm now. Uh, you name it. I'm constantly changing. And whether it's habitat or deer hunting itself, you know, if you if you find the guy that knows it all, uh, that just I got it all figured out. Don't listen to him because <laughs> I assure you it's the wrong guy to listen to. Nobody has this all figured out. The learning never ends. Um, and I mean, I'm doing stuff this year that five years ago I had no idea about. And five years from now, I'll be doing a ton of new stuff that I didn't know about today. Um whether it's deer hunting or habitat. I mean, it just never ends. And I love the challenge of trying new things or even like, hey, have you ever tried this food plot? What it fill in the blank, whatever it is. No, but I'm like, I'll try it though. I'll figure it out. Um, so I mean, I've never done sugar beets. Do I know how to plant sugar beets? Sure. Yeah, I do. Can I make them grow? I'm sure I can. I, I'm a hundred percent sure. I've never done them, but that's next year. That's one thing I'm just gonna knock out. It it won't be a, a problem at all, but uh, you, you name it though. There's a million different things that I, I still haven't done. Um, kind of like places to hunt, you know, it's just like, uh, I'll constantly take on new challenges. So yeah, wherever, where, whatever you're thinking habitat wise, um, it, it goes through my head fairly often and I'm, is pretty much a part of, you know, my, my yearly schedule. Some of it's forestry. Some of my year is plots. Some of it's just hunting strategy stuff, tweaking my spots. Some of it's whatever native grasses orchards uh tree plantings timber stand improvement um deer nutrition soil health i mean yeah i mean <laughs> it's uh it's a fun job to have well it's not boring no no kidding and, and we we appreciate your your humble attitude and and the way you're always wanting to learn we we try to do the same thing day in and day out day out um you know our, our motto or our, our slogan is becoming better habitat managers together like with the listener like a, a friend of mine the other day said you know back in your early episodes you used to ask different questions because you didn't know as much he's like i wish you would ask some of those other questions i'm like well shoot how do i do that you know go back with your with your knowledge and, and ask the more intuitive questions so 
Uh, it's cool to be able to learn and and talk to guys like you with with your story. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to some intuitive questions here. Okay. Like in a, a day in the life of Skip, you know, say say maybe a new farm. Um, how are you? How are you looking at this this new piece of property? Say it's 40 acres. Um, you know what, what what's going through your mind off the bat? You know, I, I don't know how long you've been doing the habitat stuff for. You know, totally dove in like you are now, but. Let's bring it up to like a, a first step level. Yeah. So I would say intense, hardcore habitat. I'm at maybe 25 years. Nice. Um, and I probably, yeah, I probably had <laughs> probably a couple hundred farms that I've wow. had to just take from. Um, some of them were just, you know, it depends on the foundation you're starting with. You know, I mean, if it's a 40 with just a tiny little bit of timber, it's clearly going to be different than something that's mostly timber, but, um, say like a half and half scenario, right? Like timber and tillable. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of buy, buy farms or I have bought farms. Um, I try and get things with a good foundation, a good, I like having forest on my ground. Um, I've owned gr ground with very little timber. I've owned ground with more native grasses or, you know, little young growth. But for me, just a personal thing, I think it's one, I think it's just better for hunting to have actual forest on your land. Uh, and that's what I generally like to buy. And I'm also, you know, I guess from the Michigan point of view, uh, I love being in the forest. So um, if I bought something that's half timber, immediately I'm going to be looking at timber stand improvement. Now I can immediately dive into timber stand improvement, like like uh, day one. That's what I'm doing. It, it depends on the time of year, of course. But like if I bought something, if I got something under contract this week, I mean, I'd want to be doing timber stand improvement this winter. What that means to a younger guy is immediately schedule an appointment with your state forester or possibly a private forester or somebody you re that really knows their stuff with trees and get a timber stand improvement plan in place. That's my number one thing I would start with on a piece of ground. Um, so basically, step one, get a meeting with a forester. You can get funding. They will pay you to do this. There's federal funds and there's state funds. Depends on the state. But there's always federal funds for this if you want to go that route. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Now, oftentimes I don't. Younger years, absolutely. Uh, the second thing I do is immediately get, you know, get a, a diverse food source established on the farm. Um, and then I just kind of, you know, so that would be like maybe clovers, a grain, and just getting established food sources in the right location, like a location that they're not getting spooked off of constantly. Uh, a location maybe with some better soils that you don't have to fight against poor quality soils, um, but a safe location for the deer to feed. And then I would say third on that list is just learning how to hunt that land. But I want to know how the deer use it. And it usually takes me three years to get a farm figured out. Um, but I, I would say lightly hunting it because if you go do all this work, you put in food plots and you go pound it, you probably ruin that 40 acres pretty quick. So I know it's common sense, it's cliche, but I'll still say it, like don't go over hunt your farm and just beat the living daylights out of it. You'll do more harm than good. So, you know, it, it, and maybe, the, it, and if there's not a shooter in there first year, which happens to me a lot, like, you know, there's nothing I even want to shoot. I'll still go out there and more just, just to see how the deer move, but I just hunt it very lightly. So the deer quickly get trained that, hey, this farm is definitely safe, safer than it used to be, you know, and then little things like, you know, screening the perimeter so poaching can't take place or taking the time and discipline to be there to make sure the group of 20 gun hunters doesn't show up to drive it. And I hate being that guy, but sorry, I don't, I didn't buy this. So 
20 guys can push through and shoot everything and make sure that doesn't happen. Cause that can set you back so badly if you don't nip things like that in the butt. So, so basically in summary, timber stand improvement, uh, which, you know, that's a whole can of worms, food plots, another whole can of worms, uh, and learning how to hunt it and hunting it lightly first year. That's all I'm doing to a 40 acres period. I love it. And then you hit a lot there. Um, and maybe some of that, like you said, might be might be cliche or or basic, but I don't think we can we can talk about that stuff enough. So I appreciate you hitting all that. And a lot of our listeners already know what all that is, which is which is awesome. Um, and when you're going, so I want to dive in a little further to the to the TSI can of worms, if you will. Sure. How, how hard, I guess, what are you cutting and how hard are you cutting? Every maybe, maybe before that, like what are you telling your forester is your goal? And then how hard are you cutting? Um, so I'm basically the forester now and I just go okay. and don't report back to anybody. Nice. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a little tricky part because if you are doing it for funding, every forester has got little preferences and it's like, okay, I talked, I dealt with 20 different foresters and they have 20 different perspectives. And one guy's telling me this is right. And another one's telling me this is wrong. And it just like, uh, doesn't quite mesh a lot. I mean, a lot of it's very subjective. So, you know, so most forests would be like, well, I don't want any hinge cutting. And some will be like, yeah, you can hinge cut a little. Um, and clearly the species of trees, you know, if I'm dealing with like a bottomland soil with walnuts versus a oak ridge with a bunch of hickories, the cutting is just going to be vastly different. But very loosely, I would say I cut my timber, especially like, you know, say 20 acres of timber on this 40. I would cut it hard in sections, hard in strips. And this is hard to envision without an aerial, without without actually seeing it. But I, I cut it in variation. So there's different structure in the forest. Like I might go 100 yards and create like a tenth of an acre um, hinge cut area. And I might go over here and, you know, maybe just open a swath up. And I'm, I'm constantly changing it within the timber. And I'm doing it based on preference. I'm doing it based on where I want different bedding. And I'm also doing it based on the species of trees. You know, some areas just need harder cutting, like like a hickory cluster that's grown up 20 times thicker than needed. I mean, at a base level, you know, you just need to thin hickory, right? Well, you know, some of those areas, I will just thin those hickories and some of them I might just start over and open the whole area, up, maybe a half acre even, quarter acre. Um, so when you go through my timber uh, after a year, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of structural changes, and I change the way I cut probably every 100 yards. You look over here, and I'd be like, well, the species of trees over here is a little different, and, you know, the terrain's a little different. So I'll just change the dynamics. So I want, I want constant changes in my timber. I want constant edges. I want constant visual barriers. And you can go from like, hey, that 40 at 20 acres of timber, there might have been two or three really good bedding locations for a mature buck in there. You know, like a place where he had some back cover or thermal cover, a place on a hill where he has a good vantage point. Well, if there's two or three, those bucks are going to fight over those bedding areas. When I finish with it, instead of two or three ideal bedding locations, I'll have 20 or 30, literally multiply it by 10. So the amount of mature bucks I can hold on my farm, and I've done this just over and over and over and over, is just astronomically increased because they have so many different areas for them to bed. And then I, I change, there's more dynamics to it, like with the food sources and stuff like that too. But I can just hold so many more mature bucks, literally, you know, farm after farm after farm. I mean, two and three times the amount of mature bucks once I just have so many more bedding areas. 
series and so much and other things like more browse, more food, um, more thermal cover. You know, hey, that farm is lacking thermal cover. People don't think about that stuff. Well, you know, bucks a lot, a lot of time might leave and say, you know, he doesn't have thermal cover. So I'll go over here on a farm that does. Uh, so I just want a, a vast amount of diversity and a vast amount of areas that you're like, this is what a big buck wants. And that's very subjective. It's a big can of worms, but I just create infinitely more of those. And because of that, I will hold exponentially more mature bucks every time, every time done correctly. I'm- I love it. And there's so many questions I want to I want to dive into with that because it's super uh, relevant right now. And, and also on my mind, not like when you're talking about some of these areas that, that you're clearing out um, versus a hinge cut tornado zone or whatever you want to call that. Walk me through the process of that. What equipment are you using? What's it look like when you're done? Where are the tops and the and the trunks going? Um, what's it look like when it's all said and done? OK, not a right and wrong scenario here i've done it i've done it many different ways but loosely speaking i'll go in there nobody needs to do this but i usually just put about six chainsaws in my uh truck and i fill up six chainsaws and i'm just a human hurricane (laughs) and i just they all have ridiculously sharp chains and i just go pick up one go to the next go to the next go to the next go to the next but I'll open up these areas. Let's just say I would just stick with maybe like a quarter acre area or a tenth of an acre. And I'll tip everything or I'll, I'll knock everything down. And then with all the treetops, um, again, there's not a right or a wrong because I've done it where I've re- I've kind of cleared it up. I've done it where I've left it a mess. But fundamentally, I want to make sure the deer can still travel through there. If I'm dumping treetops in there and they get so massively co- um, covered up and you know, the deer can't get through there. That's clearly too much. And I will just take the time to cut trails, very clear trails through that. It's a, it's a tangled, twisted mess, but there's very clear visual trails through that cover uh, and through those treetops. I can pretty much do that all with the chainsaw. Now, I've got a forestry mulcher if I want to go back through later um, and open some stuff up with that or make trails with that or, you know, hey, I trashed this area and man, it got it, it's too thick. I could use a forestry mulcher, but nobody needs to do that. It's just I do it um, just because just because I, I do love it. Uh, that's actually what I was doing tonight was running a mulcher. But I would say most of this can be done with a chainsaw for me. Um, you know, I will manage the invasives generally with herbicides uh chainsaw and herbicides a lot of times a little bit with fire um i personally stay away from fire for a couple reasons one is i'm uh not good with fire and i'll i'll burn the county down is usually answer (laughs) one uh i'll do it on occasion i think sometimes fire is overdone um but i'll do i'll do i'll do fire successionally just in in small pockets again just for a variety just for a change and maybe based on the invasive. So I would say a chainsaw and occasionally herbicides, especially with an invasive or a very, you know, a tree you want to get rid of, like whatever, black locusts or some kind of invasives or bush honeysuckle, then I'll use herbicides. Um, But as long as the deer at the end of the day can travel through there freely and they have clear paths of escape, they can visually see. So if something spooks them, they know, hey, I got a way out of here. If you create a scenario where a deer gets in there and it's like, you know, coyote comes up on them or something spooks them, 
and they don't have escape paths, they will just avoid that area. They will not use it. So clear escape paths, but I love extremely thick areas. And literally, I might have a a 10 acre section and it might have three little openings in it. And it might have, you know, four or five small areas of hinge cutting, maybe like 10 trees, you know, little pockets here. And then I might have crop tree release area throughout there. And then, you know, that'll, that'll let sunlight in too. Um, and there, so there's all these different successions. And then over the years, like, like two years later, I'll go back in there and I'll redo like a little bit here and a little bit there. So there's always successional growth in my timber. And there's probably 10 different successional years in my timber at every any given time. Like the brand new hmm. opened up little area here all the way till, you know, I mean, there's a few closed canopy haven't done anything in my farm, but very rare. And then I'll kind of touch them up every few years. And then every 10 years, I would say I'm kind of cycling through that t- timber stand improvement. And redoing it, um, which is madman stuff. I mean, nobody is usually going to do this stuff, but that's just <laughs> what I do. But at a basic level, I would say continue to have successional growth in your timber and continue to make structural changes. So there's variations in your timber. And you might cut it once and three years later, you're like, whoa, the forest repaired itself a lot. It really filled in. Go knock it back again. Knock the inferior species back knock the the trees that you really can't mistake make mistakes cutting the the low value the no wildlife value trees like bitternut hickory we got those here i mean you could or you could cut every one of them on your farm wouldn't hurt a darn thing um and just keep at it every year even if you're like hey the first time i cut my my timber it took me a week well next year go back for a day go back for a half a day fill up one a couple tanks of gas in your chainsaw and just pick a couple little pockets and just do that every year. And there's constantly new openings, constantly new regeneration, and constantly new new succession in your timber. Hugely mm. beneficial. And I would actually start some of that um, like right when hunting season ends because I'll go cut that stuff. And that is top tier nutrition for your deer. You know, hey, my deer are kind of stressed. Should I go throw out corn? No, no, you shouldn't. Go cut a bunch of inferior junk trees on your farm. And that's probably the best thing you could ever do for a deer. Now, long term, having all that, you know, forest regeneration and all that browse and the forbs and legumes that come up in your forest because of that and the more mass, you know, you'll have healthier deer in the winter because of that. But, you know, on the really, really short term, like hard winter and you look at this forest floor and there's nothing there. Yeah. Knock a bunch of trees down that are junk. Those it'll look like a corn pile. These these treetops. I mean, herds of deer come to these treetops and they will clean a tree out of all of its bud immediately. Crazy. Guys, I'd like to add, this is going to be part one of TSI with Skip Sly. Part two coming next week. Thank you very much for listening to the Habitat Podcast. Guys, we will be back with another great episode next week. I just want to say once again, how grateful we are for the listenership we have and the, the loyal listeners you guys have been and supporters of the podcast. For those of you who want to support further, we have free decals being sent out to those who leave us great reviews. Scroll down, hit the link to leave a great review, and then email me info at habitatpodcast.com. I'll get you a free five-inch decal in the mail right away. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors. Vitalize Seed Company at vitalizeseed.com. Exodus Outdoor Gear. Packer Max Cultipackers. Morse Nursery. Acres.com. Downburst Cedars, First Light, United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. 
I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.